Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released new bonus episodes on WandaVision, Judas and the Black Messiah, and Sundance 2021. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps here with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Our regular co-host Genevieve Kosky is taking the next couple of episodes off to wander around her backyard with a divining rod. Uh, due to the pandemic, American movie theaters are in a state of flux right now, with some reopening and some remaining closed. For safety and sanity's sake, we're still sticking to quarantainment, pairing films that you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're rolling up our sleeves and preparing to do some hard work in the fields with two films about farming. Uh, Keith, they're not just about farming. It's true. I mean, they're they're about themes like family. Y- yes, and and being an outsider in a new place. Also true. There's also, I mean, we, you haven't even touched and, you know, on. You could save all this stuff for the podcast. And water. I mean, water's a and big water. Yes, actually, actually, Tasha, why don't you go ahead and lay out what we're talking about for our next two episodes? And, and crops. I mean, you haven't really addressed the crops. Okay, fine. <sighs> Lee Isaac Chung's Minari draws from the filmmaker's own life to tell the story of Jacob and Monica Yee, played by Stephen Yuen and Han Yi Ri, two first-generation immigrants from Korea. With their children David and Anne, played by Alan Kim and Noel Kate Cho, they move from California to Arkansas at David's urging and attempt to start a new life as farmers. The theme of starting over in the country got us thinking about the 1986 film Jean de Florette, the first part of French director Claude Berry's adaptation of a novel by Marcel Pagnol, which was itself adapted from a film by Pagnol. The film stars Gerard Depardieu as Jean, a hunchbacked tax collector who, after inheriting a plot of land in Provence from his mother, decides to begin again with his wife, a former opera singer named Amy, and played by Depardieu's then-wife, Elizabeth Depardieu, and young daughter Manon, played by Ernestine Mazarona. What they don't know? A local vintner named Césaire Subriome, played by Yves Montand, and his nephew Ugolin, played by Daniel Autiel, want the land for themselves and have blocked the springs that would have allowed their efforts to thrive in an attempt to drive them out. So this week we'll do our best to find just the right rabbits to breed and just the right food to feed them. Then we'll consider whether or not Midwest demand for Korean vegetables is high enough to sustain a 50-acre farm. Please join us. de mon pied. Ça giscle. Regarde. L'eau est empêchée, mais elle est là. Quand je pense qu'il a laissé perdre cette fortune. Alors, c'est toi qui hérites Non, c'est Florette. Et qui c'est cette Florette hein Regarde, Manon, regarde. Regarde toutes ces fleurs qui Regarde la maison. Ni acheter, ni louer. Et pourtant, je suis ici chez moi. Eh bien, si vous étiez né ici, comme votre pauvre mère, on vous appellerait Jeanne de Florette. British film scholar Phil Powery has posited the best way to think about French filmmaking in the 1980s is to see it as not one cinema, but two. In one corner, you have the cinéma du look, vibrant, moody, visually striking films influenced by advertising and music videos. The films of its highest profile directors, Jean-Jacques Benet, Luc Besson, Lios Carrex, would prove incredibly influential both in France and elsewhere. In the other corner, there are what are called, sometimes derisively, heritage films, lavish, tasteful productions that look to France's past and literary canon for inspiration, a movement roughly parallel to the literary adaptations that thrived in 80s Britain. Released in 1986, Claude Berry's Jean de Florette and its sequel, Manon of the Spring, fit that description to a T. But, as with, say, Merchant Ivory's Ian Forster adaptations, they only look stodgy and safe from a distance. Berry lovingly photographs the countryside of Provence, but Jean de Florette's beauty often doesn't extend beyond nature. Humankind, with its selfishness, its insularity, and its cowardice, receives considerably less celebration. So does the history and folkways of those who inhabit that striking countryside. 
For all its postcard-ready qualities, Jean de Fleurette is anything but a nostalgic act of patriotism. Set in the years between the world wars, it opens with what ought to be a heartwarming scene, a reunion between the wealthy vintner César and his nephew Ugolin, and it is up to a point. César may be arrogant and Ugolin distasteful, but there's real affection between the two men. César wants the best for his nephew and has ambitious plans to use his land to grow flowers. So much so that he's willing to kill a neighboring farmer to take his land for Ugolin, or at the very least, not go out of his way to not kill him. Later, they'll engage in a slower sort of murder. Unable to secure the land for themselves, they plug up its water source, all but ensuring that whoever attempts to farm the land will fail, especially if it's an outsider with more ideas and experience, sure to make a string of rookie mistakes like Jean and his supportive wife and child. No stranger to being shunned for his hump, John's not particularly bothered by a town that has no interest in welcoming him, and he's good-natured enough to take Ugolin's help at face value, never suspecting he's the cause of the misery that sets in as John's crops, though briefly bountiful, start to wither on the vine, and the abundance of rabbits that fill his fox-proof pen begin to die. All the while, Ugolin and, from a distance at first, Cesar remain seemingly helpful, supportive neighbors, never revealing that they could end his troubles any time they want. So, for that matter, could anyone in town, where Cesar and Ugolin's scheme lives as an open secret. But why should they offend the wealthy and powerful to help a man from the north, and a city man at that? A hidden France and elsewhere, Jean de Florette and later Manon of the Spring helped increase tourism to Provence, but the films were unsparing in their depiction of the cracks in the country's idealized agrarian past. It's a region determined to make sure everyone knows their place. To go to town is to risk mockery, particularly if no one knows you and suspects you of being different. And it's even worse if you're different in ways you can't hide. An elderly couple from Piedmont lives in fear of being made homeless. The rich stay rich. The powerful talk down anyone with moral qualms about their ideas. Everyone else bites their tongue. And if that means inviting tragedy, that's just the way it is and will always be. Jean de Florette ends with the sun shining, but the ending sounds a dark note, one only partly sweetened by the second half of the story, Menon of the Spring. It's a tale of reinvention gone awry and of an unforgiving time and place. A portrait of a country in what can only be called a more innocent time if your eyes skip past key details. Ferry, for all his eye for beauty, refuses to look away. Ben, il faisait des écritures dans le bureau du percepteur. Oh, il va peut-être nous mettre de nouveaux impôts. Et tu crois qu'il va rester longtemps Je sais pas. En tout cas, il fait des travaux. Hein. Il répare à sa maison. Hein. Il fait ça tout seul Oui, avec des gammes. <rire> so, everyone, what's your history with Jean de Florette? Tasha, I believe you saw it as recently as 2007 because your DVD review is quoted in the Wikipedia entry. Oh, my goodness. I think that's when I encountered it. I think it came out on DVD alongside Men of the Spring, and I volunteered to cover it for the AV Club. And I think that's where I saw both of these films first. And I was immediately taken with them. Of course, now I need to go back and revisit that DVD review and or a DVD quote and see if, well, wait, now you have me a little worried that anything I say is going to contradict that DVD review, which I don't don't remember what I said in it. What I remember about these films is covering them for that DVD release and being just very taken with Jean de Florette more so than Man in the Spring. We'll talk about kind of where the break is between the two and whether they're necessary for each other, or what they feel like is standalones, I think, before we're done with all of this. But I just remember thinking like this was a kind of cinema that I hadn't encountered before. 
back at that early stage. This kind of luxurious, sprawling diptych of movies uh, that tells this long literary story was something that I, I was familiar with from Merchant Ivory films, but hadn't encountered nearly as much in international cinema. And I was just really excited at the opportunity to to dip into what seemed like, you know, France's version of A Room with a View or A Great Expectations, you know, that kind of deep character work coupled with just beautiful imagery of, of the French countryside. I really liked both of these films. Again, Jean de Flaret even more so than uh, Man of the Spring at first blush. But before the DVD came out, before I picked them up, like more or less at random, because the description sounded good, I hadn't heard of Claude Barry or either of them. It was just kind of one of those happy coincidences that you come across as a critic when you say uh, 50 things are coming out this week. Somebody's got to cover this one. Uh, what the heck? I'll volunteer for that. Yeah, I think there's an interesting point that you make in your introduction, Keith, about the perception of a film like Jean de Fleuret and perception of films like Merchant Ivory's as well in the reality of them, which is quite a bit different. I mean, you look at a film like The Remains of the Day, you know, that's not just a beautifully mounted story of unrequited romance with two big stars in it. It's also about, you know, a house uh, run by a Nazi collaborator and this kind of alternate history that's taking place as much this very dark history that's taking place in aristocratic circles. And uh, Jean de Florette has that quality, too. And I think, you know, if you talk about my history with the film, I, I'm sure that I saw it, you know, in the flow of the day. I mean, it was a big hit, you know, the two movies where I think were a hit here in, in America. And it would have hit me reasonably in stride in terms of you know seeing virtually everything at that time but like i don't know if i really appreciate it until now it's just kind of what a killer this film is and what a kind of a you know uh, as you say sort of a slow murder that ends up taking place over the course of it and what really got to me this time was how casual it all is i mean you do have the actual visceral murder of the previous owner of the farm, which is partly an accident kind of in his casual in its own way. But the rest of it is very cold and just kind of like it just this plan comes into place and it is bloodlessly conceived and mercilessly executed to perfection, I guess, at least until Manon, who I assume, you know, comes back for sweet, sweet vengeance in the sequel, gets a look at it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a lot darker than it seems. Yeah, um, I mean, this is the first uh, foreign language film I saw in a theater. I remember it very vividly because it was also it was the, the I saw it on on the last day of uh, of uh, the regular baseball season in which the, uh, the 1987 Reds, which had gotten off to a very good start, came to whimper <laughs> to an to an end. But no, I um, I was I haven't seen it since then, and I was I was struck by how much I remember it from it. Just like, like whole scenes and passages are they're very striking. Yeah, and I, and I liked it a lot then. I, I like it a lot now. I certainly have a better sense of context of how it fits into French cinema. <laughs> which is maybe the first French film I saw. And I know for a while it was kind of like the French class staple that you would watch. Um, mm -hmm. I never took French in school, but it, I, I know it was uh, much much shown in French classes. Uh, and I think it's, it's fine. I think it's, it's a pretty good introductory film. Uh, before we dive deeper into this, I'm curious, Scott's take on the, the death of the farm's original resident. I read that as entirely accidental. At least the thumping of his head against a rock, I read yeah. as entirely accidental. The fact that they choose to leave him there isn't. And certainly their discussion of whether they should go back and just murder him straight up yeah. isn't accidental. I mean, but yeah. I, I did I did take the original throw as – I mean, it's such a clumsy old man fight between it, the it two is. of them. Well, kind of, except, I mean, you know, he does, he's swinging the guy around and throwing, hurling him. I mean, it's, it's a weird s sequence, frankly, <laughs> uh, but it's accidental ish, I think. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's just, it's, but there, there is no remorse about what happened. It's, oh, for sure. It, it's an awkward thing that, that they have to deal with, but there's no like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about, <laughs> about this? There's no talk of that at all you know I, it's, I, I it's love... obviously an insult for this guy i mean this guy has insulted them you know i mean if you're uh, somebody like cesar you're not gonna accept someone so lowly speaking to you in that way you know <laughs> and not yeah. and not find it not and you would seem find it perfectly just for that person to lose his life at yeah, least you would not, not, not be morally concerned about it 
not to jump ahead too much, but I, I do love Montan's performance in this, and and I, that character is someone who, um, whose sense of entitlement and wealth, and you know, decades of of privilege and and respect, how earned or otherwise, um, makes him feel like he can just has control over life and death. I mean, it, it is the the older I get and the more I see the world, the less it feels like a movie villain and more like a very good representation of a type. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, and right, and he's not anybody who's going to raise his voice or kind of like, you know, or be talking about all of his evil plans or anything like that. He's going to be perfectly friendly to your face. <laughs> you know, he's he's a gentleman. You know, I mean, he is unbothered in a way that only the very wealthy can be unbothered. But also he has no <laughs> restriction. You know, there's no restrictions that he's putting on himself to maintain his status. Well, also in the way of very rich people, he operates largely through proxies. You know, he has other people do the dirty work for him. In this case, Yugolin, who he repeatedly, he, he kind of puppets him. You know, he tells him what to say. He tells him what to do. And Yugolin's the one who has to deal with his sympathy for the family, his mm -hmm. uh, growing friendship with the family, having to actually watch the despair slowly take over them and, and the damage be done, whereas Cesar gets to kind of sit back keep his hands and his nose clean um, and just, you know, direct everything from a distance. He doesn't come across as uh, some kind of, you know, powerful mastermind or anything. He's just kind of like a wily old bird. But he does manage to get out of all of this just incredibly clean without compromising anything himself. He just has somebody else do all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's akin to, uh, to Johnny Houston's character in Chinatown, just like someone you don't see pulling the strings, but he's there pulling the strings. And, and, uh, and, and, and definitely in a, like in a less, a less openly scheming way than, than even than the, that character. But, uh, you know, he is ultimately the person who's willing control. So I want to talk a little bit about this film in context of its sequel and its predecessor it has as far as i can tell a fairly unique origin in that it is a remake of sorts of a, a marcel pagnol film called uh men on the sources or men men on the source my french is terrible so <laughs> uh but that he was not that pagnol was not happy with and then turned into a novel himself. So it's more an adaptation of that novel that Barry apparently just happened to come across. Has anyone seen the earlier adaptation? I don't know that it's widely available or the earlier version, I should say. No. No, not at all. All right. So, so Manon, we should talk about that. We should talk about it being kind of outside the scope of this discussion because for a couple of reasons. One, the story is, is very much the second part of the story, but the first part of the story, you know, maps on pretty neatly to Minari in some interesting ways. But also Manon of the Spring is uh, not available in any way whatsoever right now, unless you buy an expensive out of print DVD or you buy what you think is a legitimate Korean DVD, and it turns out to be a uh, horrible-looking bootleg that censors out uh, what, what is deemed offensive content, um, yeah. uh, which I do not recommend. Uh, yeah. eBay, is, eBay is not always your friend in tracking down uh, hard-to-find films. But I mean, Menon is very much the second part of the story. And, and we can be a little spoilery about it. I get, I'll, I'll be slightly spoilery about it in the sense that there are secrets revealed and like seemingly minor details in this film that turn out to be major details. Details in Manon. So let's just touch on it briefly. I uh, um, I will say also that I feel this is a better film. I like Manon, but this is it's such a neatly constructed, um, you know, clockwork tragedy in some ways. And Manon is um, a very slow moving, quote unquote, revenge story in some in, in many ways. I, uh, Manon does not come back Kill Bill style to take out her enemies. <laughs> she looks like uh, she, she is at the end of the she, end of Jean de Florette. Well, but in her own way, she kind of does. And she was played by Emmanuel Bier, uh, who has very striking eyes, like some of the most unearthly eyes I've, I've ever seen on a human being. But um, it's good. And it definitely, if you like this film, you I wouldn't even say you should see Manon. You, you have to see Manon because it really is very much the second part of the story. But touching on it briefly, what was your experience? Have you you've, you've seen that film, obviously, at some point? Yeah, I mean, I saw it back to back with uh, Jean de Florette. I will fess up here that I pushed really hard for the Minari uh, Jean de Florette pairing. And when, after Keith uh, watched Jean de Florette, he came back to me and said, do, do you realize that this ends with end of part one? <laughs> <laughs> I remembered exactly where Jean de Florette ended. Uh, I did not remember it being kind of presented as though it, it was an Angels in America style, just four hour story. I remember them as two pretty discreet films. They 
They take place in different time periods. There's a lot of crossover between them. Obviously, Manon couldn't exist without Jean de Florette because it's it's all payoff for stuff that happens in Jean de Florette. But I do think that Jean de Florette stands alone as its own film in a lot of ways. It's just... You know, it's not a film about the punishing of evil. It's not a film about uh, how <laughs> how the heavens will open up and strike evildoers. There's a scene in Jean de Florette where Jean de Florette screams at the sky that nobody is up there, that nobody is listening to him. And more than anything, Jean de Florette reminds me of the book of Job in the Bible. And a Stephen King short story that I couldn't track down in time for this podcast. There's a, a short story about a man who, you know, some kind of uh, fell evil out of the dark comes to him uh, very politely and suggests that it can have he can have whatever he wants. But for every good thing that happens to him, some horrible thing will befall his friendly, cheerful neighbor. And the whole story is just a series of ever more depressing and horrible things happening to the neighbor while the protagonist just kind of like smiles and, and eats it all up and wishes for more. And it's a dark and depressing story, but I feel like it gets at kind of a fundamental truth about one of the things, one of the problems with humanity. And Jean de Florette, I think, taps into that exact same thing. I'm content with where Jean de Florette ends as a story. I feel like Men of the Spring is, it's a satisfying payoff uh, in a, a revenge story kind of way. But it also just feels so like contrived and supernatural in a way. The particular ways in which things fall out, the particular neatness of uh, how both how she attains her revenge and just a couple of things that happen to be true that kind of fall together to deepen that revenge, how it comes across and, and who it happens to all strike me as uh, very literary and not nearly as kind of like real world satisfying and understandable as Jean de Florette. Jean de Florette feels like a real story to me. Man of the Spring feels like somebody's fantasy of mm. the way the world should work, the way evildoers should be punished by fate in a way that's not necessarily gratifying. And also lacks Gerard Depardieu, which we should we should talk about the performance. Um, so Depardieu kind of became later became synonymous with outside performances, and we should also mention uh, synonymous with accusations of sexual assault. But here, there's a real subtlety to to the way he plays John's slow dissolution over the course of the film. Did that work for you? I I think it's a, a remarkable piece of acting. Yeah, we should point out that the uh, news that he had been charged with rape and sexual assault came literally the day before we were going to record this. We did not book this plan knowing about that. The yeah. charges came out of a 2018 case that was recently reopened and which I, for one, was unaware of. And it's a it's a pretty depressing coincidence, I have to say. But it was a little it, it was both a little late for us to pivot and and the thousandth opportunity to talk about uh, how and whether to separate the art from the artist. But uh, I've talked a lot, Scott. You want to lead off with the performance aspect? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I think we've said enough about Depardieu's uh, um, off-screen. I mean, you know, I mean that that we didn't even get into the, the, the Vladimir Putin stuff, right? That's, that's yeah. I think there's a tremendous amount of shame he's brought brought himself on on many many levels but uh and i and i recall at the time associating with depardieu with the sorts of french films i didn't want anything to do with <laughs> <laughs> though, I, though i though i also remember really liking him in a version of cyrano de bergerac so uh and i and also remember liking green book but um in any case green, Wait, green, green card what did i say Green, green book. book. <laughs> oh, you, oh, you like Green Book? You're a big You're fan of Green, you like book? green Book, Scott? <laughs> I like Green <laughs> Yeah. Hey, that won Best Picture. The green Card didn't win Best Picture. That's true. Anyway, yeah, so Gerard Depardieu, I mean, it, it's a wonderful performance. I, I, you know, I guess I'm now sorry to say. It, it is, you know, I mean, there's a reason why he was a huge international star and a highly respected actor. There's a an instant level of charisma and magnetism to him as a screen presence but also you know he summons a tremendous amount of passion and i think we need to see that i mean i think this is a, somebody who is taking a large risk and working the margins i mean we'll see we'll revisit this again in minari but we can see i don't think the tragedy of this film would register as strongly if jean's passion as depicted by Gerard Depardieu uh, weren't so moving and persuasive and powerful in its own right. 
Yeah, I I remember his. I, I feel like I came across his larger, later performances after seeing this movie, and was almost confused about like what became of this guy, what became of the Gerard Depardieu of this particular film. Because I think this is a really a nuanced role in a lot of ways. He's he's very charismatic. The character is written in such a way as to garner our sympathies. I mean, he's just he's such a hard worker. He's thought through this plan. He's he's thought it out in great detail. So one of the many, many things that made me think of uh, of David and Minari as I was watching Minari was just the degree to which John isn't lazy. He isn't lazy and he isn't dumb. He isn't expecting to sit back and watch the money roll in. He puts in a tremendous amount of labor into his efforts. And he's just indefatigable physically, but also emotionally. Before you see him, you come to understand that he's a hunchback and therefore kind of like despised and a, a subject of horror among the villagers. But when you first see him in person, it's with his beautiful wife and his adorable child who both clearly just dote on him. And the more you get to know him, the more you realize why. You know, this isn't somebody who uh, has bravely overcome a handicap. This is somebody who doesn't act like he's handicapped, who doesn't act like a movie character with uh, something great and terrible hanging over his head that he has to fight for. He's just a strong and happy person. And watching him slowly come down from that is devastating. And it's devastating in part because Depardieu just like puts so much heart into both sides of that equation, into the strong and striving hero who knows exactly what he wants and into the, the disintegrating man on the other side who knows he can't get there and can't stop fighting for it. What do you think, Keith? I mean, yeah, I mean, his introduction is just, I mean, you touched on it a little bit already, but it's just, it's just instantly vibrant. And so someone who's instantly full of life and, and winning and who, unless, I don't know, unless you're, you're a, a crusty old uh, <laughs> resident of Provence, you're rooting for him to succeed and, um, you know, and, and to watch that fail and fail so slowly and like bit by bit with just enough, and there's enough glimmers of light to make the ultimate failure that much more devastating. Uh, it's, it's, it's a rough watch in many ways and, and, and in large part because of that performance. Uh, we should talk about, um, we talked about Montand a little bit, but we should talk about, uh, Daniel Otiel, who, you know, is probably a little bit of context here is, is not a horrible, repulsive person. I had to remind myself after the movie was over that, Oh yeah, it was, it was him. I did not, he's not recognizable to me. You know, obviously, because he's made up in this in this film in a, in a pretty significant way, but also because this is not the kind of performance that you expect mm. from Daniel Altiel. I mean, who is who was reliably subtle and quiet and a, a very sturdy star in so many French films, you know, of the '90s and I think into the aughts too, right? Yeah, he's a filmmaker now, and many of his films, uh, his most recent films, have been adaptations of Marcel Pagnol's films, uh, Marcel Pagnol's uh, works. So there's a little bit of a circularity there as well. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a strange one. I mean, it's not it's it's not my least least favorite of the three lead performances mm. for sure. Though I'm reminded that character is technically, I guess, a, a Caesar's nephew, but he, he's he is the large adult son <laughs> type, is he not? Of just this of this guy who's you know, I mean he's obviously not as callous as his uncle, but he is a a fail son, you know, he's a he's a loser. <laughs> you know, it, it it would not be able to do anything on his own without help from his, you know, wealthy, in this case, uncle. They're kind of a, a winemaking Roy family <laughs> in some ways, aren't they? But yeah. also, uh, I also I wonder if there's kind of a political dimension to someone with someone so, is essentially a weak-willed person being bent to the command of of, of someone of, of someone who's confident but evil. I mean, there's there is sort of a you know fascism in Europe kind of quality to that as well. Yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching the, it out too he's, far. He's the tip. He's the tip of the spear, kind of right. He's yeah, the, he's the tool that. Montan's character can use to get what he wants while allowing to allow himself which is to say Montan's character Cesar is the um, 
privilege of distance from what he's executing here. Sure, but I don't I don't think you're giving him enough credit. I mean, he is just back from the army. Yeah, he he did go off and have experiences in the world by himself. He didn't just hang around and be told what That's to true. do. And when he comes back, he comes back with the carnations and with a plan. And he doesn't launch himself directly into it the way Jean does. He does a test run. You know, he very carefully cultivates these things to see if they're going to work in the land. And then he takes them and sells them to see if he's going to be able to get uh, reasonable prices for them. He does take his own smart steps. And he also isn't lazy. One of the things you kind of see about both of the villains in this piece is they're they're sustenance farmers in addition to profit farmers. They're working their backs off uh, just trying to keep their their businesses going like neither one of them is sitting on a porch drinking mint juleps they're out there working every day pretty hard every, every time jean and his family go by with the the donkey to get more water Yugolin is out there in the fields watering his own plants so he's not quite as much of a, a slouch as you make him out to be he's not That's quite true. as much of an That's idiot true. he is farming his own patch and, and living in his own place now granted he doesn't seem to know anything about basic hygiene or cleaning up after himself, he is immature in a lot of ways, and he definitely is allowing his uncle to call the shots and yeah. lead him against his own morality. He's he's weak willed. <laughs> yeah, he's he's weak willed, and he's perhaps easily steered, but yes. he's he's not just a cat's paw. I guess is no, what I'm yeah, saying. that's a, that's a that's a good point. And I I think that makes him more interesting. I, yeah, you know, I mean I, the carnations thing is definitely a point in his favor. I mean I think there is an interest. It's quite pure at the beginning on his part to grow something from that land and to tend to it and to and to care for it in a way that I think you would ideally want your land that exceptional be, to be cared for. I think in the same sort of way, Cesar's interest in him as a continuation of his beloved family line is a really interesting motivator. That's just something we don't see in American stories. I maybe period, certainly not much. And it adds an interesting dimension to the whole thing. It's weaponized to uh, a point in Man Under the Spring. It's it's part of the big downfall is his fascination with his own bloodline and his once proud family name. But as motivators go, you know, he's not the American developer who wants to tear down the uh, inner city street kids community center in order to put up condos. You know, he's he's not just motivated by greed and money and a desire to expand his business. He's motivated by his own sense of, of family, his pride of place, his pride of lineage. And that's just it's an interesting motivation to me. Like he honestly seems to have affection for Yugolin, not even necessarily as a person, but as a symbol, as a representation. And that doesn't make what he does any more acceptable, but it just does give an interesting and an unusual twist to the whole thing, I think. He's someone who feels like he's fully justified in his actions. I mean, it is, it is, it is kind of like that nobody thinks they're a bad person kind of thing, and, and I don't think he thinks he's evil in any way. Oh, no, for sure. Because, uh, you know, the person that he's aiming all his blows at is an outsider and a dummy as far as he's concerned. I think the fact that he doesn't really meet him gives him, again, as we, we've been talking about, that that distance and a certain deniable plausibility. But he doesn't have any feeling for Jean as a fellow human being at all. There's a sense that he doesn't have a feeling for any human being that he's not doesn't have a blood relationship to. So I went back and read some reviews of this film when, when it played the U.S. in 1987, and they're 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 almost universally positive. I think maybe possibly universally positive, and a lot of them refer to it. At, well, also a lot of them kind of compare it to food, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> just just because it's French, I guess you have to compare it to food. But a lot of them use the term "old fashioned" as a compliment, and I'm wondering why that why you think that might be, and how this fits into what was going on in film elsewhere in the 1980s. At this point, I just associate the 80s with uh, roided up, oiled up, uh, <laughs> like Arnold Schwarzenegger types uh, blowing up stuff while extremely dumb women followed them. <laughs> I know uh, the 80s were a lot more complicated cinematically, but this kind of... There's also a guy named Ferris Bueller. He took a day off. <sighs> yeah, but he was he was muscled up and roided up, right? Uh, that's true. Spent what, most about of that the, movie what about oiled. the babysitter with Elizabeth Shue? You know, one, you know one movie I remember? There was one movie, get this. There was this baby, and this baby was with not one, not two, 
but three men. Oh, do they know how to take care of this uh, child? Not uh, at first. Okay. Not at first. <laughs> anyway, you were saying, the, Tasha. <laughs> the French version of that movie was better and was kind of more old-fashioned. Oh, God. God they remade <laughs> so many of that dude's movies into horrible, horrible uh, Hollywood films. Yeah, oh, that my was, God. That was definitely an era where Hollywood was looking to France for inspiration. Trace particularly, <laughs> Particularly comedic, but also, you know, your... Uh, God, your La Femme Nikitas and whatnot. Was that the wait? Was that the nineties? When was that's the Sun? But yeah, that's that's yeah. early, early nineties. Definitely part really of the cinema. Early, yeah. And right at you, the turn, the, you're thinking of point of no return. Yeah, in terms of comedies, a lot of them come from the from the mind of Francis Weber, uh, oh, <laughs> much, yeah. much much remade uh, French director. Yeah. But there's a, there's a reason that French comedy was being tapped for remakes. French action was being tapped for remakes in the 80s and 90s because it was stylish. It was stylish and up to the moment and experimenting with story, experimenting with, with narrative. And those comedies were really funny, whereas you don't see anybody trying to re- remake Man Under the Spring and Jean de Florette because these are stories about people's relationship with the land, people's love of the land, people's love of, again, their their heritage, their bloodline. These are very old-fashioned story concepts. These are very literary novel plot lines. I don't know who the French literary equivalents of E.M. Forrester are, but I feel like there's got to be a lot of these kind of you know provincial morality tale novels out there. And I just, I don't see America tapping into them, maybe in part because farm stories out of France would be a bit different than farm stories out of America. You know, the the story of a man who loves his farm creating fine wines versus the story of a man who loves his farm uh, starving in the dust bowl. They're just, they have very different national associations. Whereas comedy, I don't want to say is universal, but it might translate a little better particularly the kind of slapstick comedies we're talking about here. I guess I think I have a different interpretation of what was going on commercially in France at the time. I don't think I I think that that these films that we saw a lot of these French films remade in in America because in the 80s with Cinema du Luc and and with, you know, the films of Francis Weber, etc. I think there was a significant movement within the French film industry to be more commercial to make movies that are were like movies that were made in Hollywood in their in their own way or to do things like to you know to take a formula that they had established in a film like La Cage à Faux and work it through the different variations that were commercially friendly in France and could be commercially friendly in, in the United States and it, to me what Jean de Florette evokes and why you might wor- use a word like old fashioned would be you know, the cinema of quality tradition of movies from earlier eras or, or movies or movies, maybe movies that were always made in France that were that were handsome literary adaptations, the type of, you know, I mean, cinema of quality, of course, has a stain on it because it was those were the types of movies that, you know, the, the Caillou du Cinema people and the French New Wave people rebelled against in making their own much, much edgier and hippie, hipper films uh, but uh, Jean de Florette is kind of in that tradition and which is why I was sort of praising it earlier for having the look and feel of of a friendly pretty provincial art house literary adaptation etc period piece but also having a, a little bit of a hidden edge to it um, uh, which I think gives it distinction from some of its peers it's a dark film in many ways. And, you know, slight spoiler, Minari's not quite as dark, I guess. But we'll talk about this more in the next episode when we when we compare it to Minari. Uh, we'll be right back after a few moments for some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We've gotten more voicemail than usual of late, so I think we're going to make this one an all-voicemail edition. Uh, first up, here's a listener whose voice sounds a little familiar. Hello, Next Picture Show. This is Bob calling about your excellent discussion of my favorite movie of the year, Nomadland. One thing you touched on was how Fern likes to be useful, but I was also struck by how having a job visually transforms her. Even if it's minimum wage and her uniform is polyester pants and a polo shirt, 
She looks more relaxed and comfortable when she's working, much as David does in his docent uniform at the park. I think for both of them, being a worker means being accepted as a functional member of society, and that while Fern is very able to defend her lifestyle, she welcomes having eight hours a day when she doesn't have to, when her uniform confirms her identity. And I thought that brought across a reality of human of American life, how a job is about the money, but not entirely about the money. Anyway, looking forward to all your future episodes. Goodbye. So that, that voice sounded a little familiar, Tasha. Does that, that voice sound familiar to you? A little bit familiar. Thank you for handsome. calling in, sweetheart. It sounded like a very, a very handsome listener. Why, <laughs> Scott, I'll, I'll let him know that you fancy him. <laughs> now I want to hear you, you completely trash what uh, your husband just said, Tasha. Oh, yeah. No, he has no idea what he's talking about. I mean, what the heck? Who, who even let this man criticize film? No, I, I think that this is a salient point. I maybe would go a little bit further. Um, I'm not sure if this is quite what Bob intended or uh, I'm reading a little more into it. I do think that it's important to Fern to have a job because being able to be self-sustaining is important to her. I don't know that it's primarily about the money, but it definitely is important to have money because she doesn't want to ask other people for help. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to have to invite other people into her lives. I think she, where she goes with David Strathairn's character at the end just proves that she doesn't want to need to be that close to people. And maybe it's because of the huge tragedy in her life. She just doesn't want to go through that again. She wants to keep her distance and to some degree live in her memories. So I think that self, self-sufficiency is very important to her. But I, I do get the impression that then this seemed to be more what Bob was saying it feels important for her to confirm that she is in some way a part of society, that she is she has not an occupation, as we usually use the word, in terms of a career that she's chosen, so much as literally an occupation, like something to keep herself occupied, something where she feels like she's producing or, or doing something useful to society. And I think the performance and the script are both minimalist enough that we can bring in these interpretations. We can kind of see them in the way things play out. But I, I like that she doesn't sit down and explain to anybody. It's very important for me to have a job because blah, blah. Yeah, well, I will say a couple of things here because I really do like this part of the movie. Uh, one is that I think that all of us, and I say, I'm saying specifically <laughs> the three of us, our jobs and our identity are extremely closely tied together, right? I mean, because we are, uh, we have jobs that are connected with the things that we're very passionate about, and you know, we've had them for a long time. But in Fern's case, she's had that opportunity. That's in her past. I mean, I think that I think we can imagine that in the past, her identity was very much connected with her job and with her home and with her husband. You know, it was all home for her. And when that home, when, when all of that went away, you know, I think the film expresses both the terror and the sense of possibility of being untethered from your job or your home as fundamental to your identity. You, you know, she can move from gig to gig, you know, in a way that I think the film is nuanced about. I think we can see that it's scary and unsteady and maybe a bad sign of where the country is at in terms of stability, in terms of working people, but also the freedom that she gets to be able to bounce from one place to the other and one from one gig to the other and not identify herself as an Amazon employee or identify herself as a wall drug employee or identify herself as a campground employee. She's free in that way. I can't help but wonder if, again, in a very unexpressed sort of way, part of that sense of satisfaction that we see her taking in her job, whatever her job may be, is just a sense of, well, things are settled for right now. You know, her, she lives a very unrooted existence. She's tapping into a lot of come and go jobs that may or may not be there when she gets there. And she's operating on word of mouth in some cases to know whether there's going to be a job once she's crossed the country for that job. I wonder if some of that sense of relaxation that we see her take on and, and purpose when she has a job is in part from just the comfort of knowing that like for this little period of time, she has a focus and and it's all settled and she doesn't have to worry about the next thing so much. Well, as with Tasha, I always find what Bob says compelling in every possible way. Uh, so that was uh, thanks for thanks for calling in. Uh, we also, uh, you know, we encourage people to to call in and, and ask questions about anything else in the world of film. And Bryce from Toronto called in with just such a question. 
Tasha, can you play that? Hi, Next Picture Show. I'm a huge fan. This is Bryce calling from Toronto. And I've got a question for all of you about film criticism itself. Uh, I myself live and breathe film. I'm not a professional in any way, but I can tell you what my top 50 films are in order. And I've, I've revisited some of my favorites you know, dozens of times. But something I hear you guys say a lot, and which I've heard Michael Phillips say many times on, uh, on film spotting, is this idea of you're talking about a new film, one that you might not even be particularly thrilled about. And I hear things like, you know, I've seen this film two times, and the second time I, or, you know, I've only caught up with this twice, but I'm looking forward to a third viewing where I can really, and I guess my question is, you know, to me, so much of a, of a, of many films is about that narrative thrust. It's about the, you know, the, the plot ticking, ticking away and kind of finding out what happens next and what happens next and how does this thing climax and kind of, you know, resolve itself. So I don't mean to suggest that there aren't films that you can revisit endlessly. Everybody's got a list of those. But I guess here's the question. Don't you get bored? Like on the second or the third viewing of a, of a relatively mediocre film, and how do you overcome that? Like, how do you forget the fact that you know what's going to happen next and how this thing ends? Do you go into, like, a film critic's trance where you forget about that? You're just focusing on the editing or you're thinking deeply about the, the lighting or what the gaffer did? Because uh, it makes me feel like less of a cinephile when I admit that I would find it very difficult to watch a, a new movie that wasn't an instant favorite of mine more than once over the course of a week or so. And I would just love to hear from you folks, the professionals, how do you manage that? Anyway, thanks a lot. I love your show, and uh, I can't wait for your next episode. I wanted to call back and name off his top 50 films in order. Yeah. At a, at a, that's amazing. Film critic trance. I like it. Well, I mean, Br- Bryce's, yeah, I thought too. Well, Bryce's perspective on, on this matter is reflective of Pauline Kael's. I mean, Pauline Kael famously yeah. would not revisit a film after she saw it, she felt she got it and she was supposed to get it after the first time and she, she moves on. For me, it's really just about, am I compelled to go back to something? I certainly am not compelled usually to go back to a mediocrity <laughs> to see what I've missed that I don't, you know, or, or back to something that, that's going to be um, not gratifying in some way. But I think there are, there are occasions where there's just a lot to take in, in, in one viewing or a film is just so pleasurable that you want to, chase that high again to some degree so i mean i think it depends on the movie what, what do you all think i think this is almost a question primarily for keith because i have heard keith say i watched that movie yesterday and then i watched it again today to see what i'd missed <laughs> more than i think i've heard any other critic ever say that oh i think that bryce may have an impression from listening to keith in particular that this is a common thing for film critics and i can tell you right now it's it's not there are people that enjoy revisiting films or that are worried about missing something in films and if you have a screener if it's if it's possible to see it multiple times, or if you see it at a festival and then you aren't going to actually get around to reviewing it for a couple of months, maybe revisiting things under those circumstances is common. But most of us probably are only seeing a film once before we write a review. Yeah, I, it's, it's not really something I do a lot. I, I think most recently I had the occasion to do it with Mank. Uh, Mank. And I was glad to, to, to watch it again for a couple of reasons, just to kind of confirm my, my feelings on it, but also because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the far side of 40 now. So <laughs> things don't stick I around. Know. Well, I mean, that's, that's a big problem like, with I this remember, podcast, I right? We just, we're, I, I often, I saw Promise a <laughs> Young Woman twice because I, you know, it was, too, yeah. it was just too much distance between the first time and when we recorded. Yeah, I watched Minari twice. I, I did not. Uh, I, I did not watch our last episode. Um, uh, Nomadland. Uh, you didn't watch Nomadland. See, yeah, I've seen, no, I saw I Nomadland twice and Minari twice. I happily would have watched No Man Land twice, but I didn't have a great screener of it. So uh, I decided to just uh, just go by memory on that one, um, such as it is. Um, but, you know, I, I just, you know, I, the details need to be there, if, if, especially if we're going to host an episode. So, you know, there's that. I, 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 I think revisiting films a lo- is a luxury uh, if you love them and it's sort of like a duty if, if you don't and, and you don't feel like, you know, you have a grasp on it. So that, that's what it comes comes down to, you know. But I would... Um, I would love to have more time just to rewatch films because I do find I think Bryce agrees with this as well that that uh, uh, revisiting your favorite films is a tremendous pleasure and, and one that you know you maybe don't get uh, to indulge in often enough. I realized it would probably have been like cheese maybe fifteen years since I'd seen Lost in America before uh, the last time, so it was uh, it's good to go back.
back to that one. Yeah, I think Genevieve and I maybe are on the further end of this, but we've both talked about feeling so motivated by the immense piles of things that we haven't watched and feel guilty about. Or feel like, you know, we haven't we haven't fully done our homework because, you know, there are a thousand noir films that I haven't seen yet. And noir is great. And I would always like to experience more of it. So as a result, like I'm not a comfort viewer. I I don't have I I know friends who say they've seen every episode of How I Met Your Mother 10 times or some such. Part of that is because there are things that they put on in the background, which is just something I don't do. So I think it's very different if you are a person who's used to having a TV on in the background as, as background noise. I know a lot of people that do that for comfort and I, a lot of people who don't. Uh, I think some people who rewatch stuff a lot it's not they're not giving it their full attention on the third or fourth viewing it's just uh like a companion so that's that's part of it but as far as having like a special critic meditative uh routine that France. that we were taught uh <laughs> at the foot of the master at some point that that makes it easier to to tolerate a mediocrity no <laughs> there there isn't a secret you're missing out on there no i think i think a lot of it for me for recent films is just the show and and needing to be as well prepared for to talk about something as possible because I do forget if there's too much distance or I, or if I see a film at a film festival back when such things I went to such things you know I would have to rewatch you know if I saw f- one of the big fall movies at Toronto I'd have to go back and I'd have to rewatch it when it came for a general release so that's just the way it goes you could just go you you should just go back to your hotel room and write a full review and then you have it banked yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a yes. I mean, you know, see, the, what happens to me in Toronto is that I write for variety, and the and the ones I go, have to go back to my hotel room and write are just the pieces of crap that nobody else on staff wants to take, and the significant films are the ones I, I see and then have to uh, watch again later. So little little. I know he doesn't, but I feel like Noel Murray would go back to his room and and just re- write a whole review and then just have it for for yeah, months. Yeah, he do something it, like that. He has notes. He, he yeah. takes really detailed notes at at the screenings, yeah. but he I can't do all be too. Noel Murray. But I can't actually read them later. No. I can barely read my handwriting. Uh, that that when I write it in broad daylight in a, on a surface, I can see. Yeah, he's supernatural. We love Noel. We do. Uh, well, we we love our listeners too, and we always appreciate when they share their thoughts and their recommendations. Uh, if you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow dot net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at a similar story that takes place miles away and years later from the Provence of Joan de Florette, Minari. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, keep the water flowing and the garden hoeing. <laughs>